we started the 18th letter and I wanna go back over some footnotes. There are three footnotes that we have not yet read. The first footnote is related to page 263 in which it describes that the Torah was not studied with the resolve to fulfill it, right? And that's why in relation to life for the sake of living, and that's why the Torah study did not end up permeating us. And that's why we ended up doing the sins that unfortunately we did, which caused us to be exiled, the first exile. So if you turn to page 280, see letter 17, note two on Rabbi Shamshin Rafael Hirsch's definition, Torah Lishma, studying Torah for the sake of applying it to life, right? It cannot be an academic discipline, as we've said in the past. It has to be with the intention of actually applying the practical concepts and principles to your life. And see also his comments in letter 15, where he makes the same point that is reiterated here, that all the weaknesses in the understanding and the meaningful practice of Judaism are a result of the failure to view Torah in its relation to life, right? I think, I think we've discussed this in the past, that sometimes the best way to actually understand what the Torah is doing is to practically experience it, right? In terms of let's see Shabbos, for example, where people are like, why do you have to do everything? Why not just turn off your cell phones and, you know, don't do this and this, but why does all the details matter? And the reality is you can't know it until you've experienced it. So if you, without trying to understand what the Torah does for us, it's, it's good in the abstract, but when practiced, it's far different. Rabbi Shabshon Fala Hirsch's thesis that the understanding of the Torah's inner spirit was largely lost in the course of history has evoked much controversy and criticism as of other major points in this letter, particularly his strong critique of the Rambam, Maimonides, whom he faults, despite his reverence for the Rambam's extraordinary role in the preservation of Torah, for adopting a philosophical approach to Judaism that is drawn from non-Jewish sources. It is therefore important to point out that Rabbi Shabshon of Hirsch's comments on the Rambam closely follow those of the Chassid Yaivitz in his Ar HaChayim. Rabbi Shamshin Fal Hirsch was very familiar with this work, which he quoted at length, and he was apparently deeply influenced by it. The notes to this letter will indicate some of the major parallels between passages in Arachayim and in the 19 letters, right? We didn't actually read that criticism yet, but in terms of the criticism of the Rambam, which is a, a very old critique of the Rambam, that the Rambam took an approach, I wouldn't quite say from comparative religion, God forbid, very far from comparative religion. But the Rambam was certainly a philosopher, was very, very familiar and considered Aristotle to be a, a chacham, one of the wisest people who've ever lived, and felt that their wisdom that he actually offered was actually can help us inform our understanding of the Torah, not because there was something that the philosopher had to offer that the Torah did not contain within it, but that certain concepts, terminology, vocabulary, that had become more familiar to us from philosophy would help inform our understanding of Torah. That was something for which he was very heavily criticized and there was a lot of back and forth about the Rambam, which is why you may, you may know the Rambam, part of the Rambam's writings were actually burnt by, by religious Jews at a certain point because of they felt that it was leading people down a, a, a path in which they were doing the wrong thing. It's easy for us to judge it you know, from our you know, seat today but it's very hard for us to recognize what the circumstances were and what led that decision to actually burn part of the Rambam, a very, very different world. And it's very easy looking back to say that was crazy from our perspective today as very open-minded in living in a, uh, a very open to the world lifestyle. But understanding what it was like then obviously was not so simple because there was huge debates about what to do with the Rambam's opinion. Okay, 
So then what we have is that the the but original this was only for Moana Bukhim, right? Not for the uh, Mishnah Torah. Actually, the Mishnah Torah was controversial for a different reason. Um, the Mishnah Torah was controversial, which is it's is this great book, fantastic, which is the source of uh, at least one of the sources of how practical halacha today is the Mishnah Torah, which literally means the repetition of the Torah. And what he did is he took all of the laws throughout the Talmud, throughout the Mishnah. And he categorized it in his own systematic fashion, as opposed to following the same format as the Talmud. It was controversial because the Rambam actually held that if you study the, the Mishnah Torah, you no longer even need to look at the Gemara. And that was controversial because that was also considered to not be the proper attitude towards the Gemara. Um, but the, when, they, when they burned the Rambam's books in, in 1242, I want to say, in Mont Montpellier, I think they burnt every, I think the those individuals burnt um, everything and not just the, the Mora. I think they did actually. Uh, okay, originally on page 263, the footnote is going to be discussing the the, the interplay of the Torah Shebiksav and the Torah Shebalpeh, the written Torah and the oral Torah. Only the fundamentals of our teachings were recorded in writing as the Torah Shebiksav, the written Torah. Their broader applications and certainly their spirit and inner life were to be perpetuated by the living Torah, Torah Shabalpeh, the oral law. So if you look over here on page 280, see in letter to note six, Rabbi Shamshan Fal Hirsch's emphasis on the unity of the written and the oral law and their relation to each other. The written law leaves the general underlying concepts of Torah law, as well as their spirit, meaning to oral transmission. To the unprejudiced mind, nothing can show so strikingly the truth of the traditional oral law as the first two paragraphs with which this mosaic law giving starts. In other words, if somebody would understand that the, the Torah itself is coming, the written Torah is coming for the sake of actually teaching us practical law, it would be very, very odd to start with these first two paragraphs of which the Torah begins, which in other words, of the creation of the universe, it's seemingly completely not related to a, a law book. Law books don't start with that kind of discussion unless it's extremely pertinent to the next part of the conversation. So the book is not the real source of the Jewish conception of rights. Its source is the traditional law, which was entrusted to the living word, oral tradition, for which this book is only an aid to memory and reference. That is how the Rambam approached the understanding of the relationship between the written and oral. The next thing that we're going to discuss is the idea of how there were parts of the Talmud that were able to be written down, but parts of it were still being conveyed to us, even though they were written down, but in a very veiled form and only possible to truly understand what the Talmud is teaching us if you have someone to help elucidate the writings with the oral tradition, okay? So Rav Hirsch is now going to explain what this means. This is a very fascinating part. I might have told you guys the story in the past. Uh, Norman Mailer, right, who um, was not raised Orthodox, but was raised in a Brooklyn of the probably 1920s or so, in which there were many, many Orthodox Jews around. And he may have even gone, if I remember correctly, to like some sort of a Sunday school in an Orthodox synagogue or something of that sort. And um, I remember reading how he, he um, made fun of the idea of the Talmud. And he made fun of certain um, fables that the Talmud discusses. The Talmud tells us in the story of Titus, who destroys the who destroys the, the second temple, right? The, the, the Roman general. The Talmud tells us that um, he got punished for this 
by there was a little, he basically was challenging God and said, you can't punish me. You can't, you can't touch me. You know, you, you don't know, no longer have any power. Your power is over, right? And the punishment that he received is that this uh, little uh, gnat, a mite, you know, flies up his nose one day and it lodges itself in his nose and it grows and grows and grows and he couldn't get rid of the noise and the buzzing. It's like Havana syndrome almost, right? And he can't, he can't get rid of the, of the buzzing. And they have to start, uh, he hires a, um, a blacksmith to start banging on, a, on an anvil. And that's the only way that he could stop listening to the sound of the buzzing is that the sound of the anvil getting hit actually outweighs it, right? Which is probably not so pleasant. And this goes on and on and on until finally he dies. And they, they do some, somewhat of an autopsy and they open up his head, they open up his brain and they see like the a, a size of a, a pigeon in his brain, okay? That's how the Talmud describes it. So Norman Mailer is laughing at this idea and says, well, the rabbis are fantastical stories. I realized right away that this was a waste of time, right? He completely missed the point, right? It, it, it's using a mashal, it's using a parable to convey a different point. An example that I've heard given, and we're, not, we're gonna end up doing this footnote on Thursday night, Bezrat Hashem, an example that I've heard given to explain the relationship of the parables that the Talmud uses to sort of explain to us these deep meaning that can only be understood by people who actually understand the reference points is if you were to hear about a terrible war in the Middle Ages, a terrible war where, you know, uh, one side lost, uh, you know, decimated uh, an entire population, depredations and whatnot. And you were to hear that their fate was sealed with one drop of ink drowned 100,000 people, right? If you would hear a, a statement like that today, then you would probably assume that there's some sort of a metaphor going on and you'd be right. What it would mean is, is that when the king decided to use that one drop of ink and say, go attack this nation, that sealed their fate and it drowned them in one drop of ink. But if that metaphor would no longer be at all, practically speaking, applicable 200 years from now, and someone would see that on a piece of paper, that at that time, one drop of ink drowned millions of people. You would say, what kind of fantastical fable is this ridiculousness? I'm not reading this book and throw it away, right? But of course you missed the point because you didn't understand the context. You didn't have the tradition to help you understand what this is coming to convey. So what this footnote is going to describe, footnote number three, is going to describe what exactly Agadeta is. The Agadeta are these fantastical stories, stories that describe things that don't seem, cannot possibly seem to be true, but yet they have a message, a timeless message for us even today. And Rafersh will get into that in, and not Rafersh, but Rabbi Elias will get into that in this footnote. Emir um, Tzashem, God willing, on Thursday night.